0: Living in America as Christians, particularly in our growing secular age, has become increasingly more and more difficult. From popular culture to everyday workplaces, Christians are finding it less comfortable with the trajectory of modern life. We often feel as if we are outsiders and strangers. Many who have grown up in America over the last century and a half have noticed the trajectory of modern society and modern life growing further and further away from Scripture. The problem, however, lies not in the fact that culture seems to be changing, that uh, noticeably things around us are shifting, but that somewhere along the way we were convinced uh, that living in this world was normal. That is, that it was normative to be a follower of Christ. You see, there was a time in American life where it was popular to be a Christian. In fact, in many communities across America, it would have been unheard of, uh, seemingly impossible, to be a part of a community and not attend a local church, to not be a part of some local gathering, whether it be Episcopalian or Presbyterian or Baptist. You just went to church because, well, frankly, that's what everybody else did. But as America became secular and more and more so over the last half of the 20th century and into the 21st century, we noticed that what happened is it became socially unacceptable, even awkward to attend church. It was strange to be a part of a, a local church, to be active. It's one thing to attend church, something entirely some different, to be active in that church. It became something that was just strange to our culture. I'm sure today many of you who are still in the workplace or as you consider your neighbors and friends and families, they look at you strangely when you begin to talk about how often you serve the local church or how often you attend church. Today our culture really has the opposite pressure it once did. Once it was weird not to be in church, now today it's weird to be in church. It's weird to accept the doctrines of the church, to particularly hold true to those doctrines. Uh, we're labeled as being out of step or on the wrong side of history. Uh, we're labeled as if we are uh, weird and strange for the things we believe. But as genuine Christians uh, seek to faithfully follow Christ in this world, this world that is increasingly secularizing, as we begin to, to really understand something of, of a biblical reality, that we truly are strangers and exiles or sojourners in a foreign land. You see, the problem was is that living in America, we began to feel as if America and Christianity were one and the same. We had a, a sort of civil religion. Uh, we had a, a sense of everybody's a Christian. And, and really, that's not true. And as we began to understand that, that it's not normal to follow Christ, that this world is not our home, as we faithfully follow Christ, what we will find is that, that, that brothers and sisters, we are in a foreign land. This is strange land. This, this is not meant to feel like home. This is not meant to feel like we are welcomed here. So I wonder today, do you feel like an exile? Do you feel as you look out in your life, as you, feel, as you look, do you feel as if you are a sojourner, that you are a citizen of another country, that this world is not your home? Friends, we're going to be considering a a, a new letter this morning, a letter from the Apostle Peter handed down to us through the centuries, a letter from God to his people, reminding them that in this world, uh, they should always feel like strangers. Uh, They should always uh, feel like sojourners in a distant land, that they should always feel as if they are not at home. They are exiles, and that with this exile, they are to suffer for the glory of Christ. They are to share in the sufferings of Christ. And, and so over the next several weeks, several months really, we are going to take time and walk through the letter of First Peter. as we consider what the Apostle Peter delivers to us under the inspiration of the Spirit, how God has called his people to share in the sufferings of Christ we should find it normal to suffer and abnormal not to suffer. That suffering for the name of Christ, that suffering as followers of Jesus Christ, we should see rather normal in our lives, weekly, even daily, when we face the surmountable pressures of living faithfully in a culture, in a world that is foreign to us. Friends, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter this morning. And we're going to consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're going to kind of take this slowly over the several weeks um, and consider perhaps thought by thought, precept upon precept, as we move through this letter and think about its goodness for us as God's people. I hope that you're encouraged by it in one way, that you can grow through this time. uh, As we spend time in in, an epistle, we haven't done that yet together. Uh, We've looked at narrative. uh, We've considered poetry. uh, We've considered uh, prophets and apocalyptic literature. uh, But we have yet to consider in our Sunday morning gatherings an epistle. Uh, And I'm encouraged by it. I feel at home when I'm preaching epistles, and so I'm looking forward to this fall and working through this letter with you as we consider uh, this word from the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Well, as we consider this letter this morning, we're going to consider just these first two verses, uh, which are, if you will, like floor joists running under a house. Uh, They are the foundation to the whole letter. Uh, what we are introduced in these short words and short phrases, and you consider, my goodness, there's really not a whole lot there to consider. But there is much to consider there. Uh, The doctrine of election is laid before us, and we will find throughout this entire letter that God's purposes in election lay the foundation of the entire letter. Uh, They support the letter, if you will. And uh, as we consider this, I hope that it just blows your mind full of God's grace and mercy, and your mind grows in the knowledge of God. So we consider right here at the beginning, the letter is written by Peter. Uh, We are told that this letter is uh, a letter from Peter. Peter was an apostle. He identifies himself in this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, who was Peter? Uh, Who was this man? He was one of the early followers of Jesus. We remember our series as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, that Mark got much of his uh, narrative information, much of the information that he communicates to us, uh, from the apostle Peter. Peter was that early man, a fisherman turned uh, preacher. He was the one called uh, with uh, his real name being Simon. Remember Jesus turned his name into Peter. uh, Peter meaning the rock. In that famous passage where Jesus tells Peter that upon this rock I will build build my church. and It wasn't really upon Peter but upon Peter's confession. That Jesus was the Christ that he was going to build the church. And, And throughout the book of Acts we know that that Peter was very integral in the life of God's people from the very beginning. He was, if you will, the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And throughout the first half of the book of Acts we see the, the working of Peter as Peter ministers to the Gentiles, or excuse me to the Jews. Uh, Peter's ministry was primarily among Jewish people. People who had grown up Jews and had converted to Christianity. Uh, and then halfway through the letter, we know that it shifts to the Apostle Paul, which uh, he, wrote, he writes most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, and, and the ministry shifts as the Apostle Paul goes to the Gentiles. But here Peter is writing uh, to us, and he is writing as God's people, and he identifies himself as an apostle. Uh, so what is an apostle? An apostle of Christ. Uh, we understand the word itself just means sent ones. Uh, but sent with what? Sent with an authoritative message. So Peter has a word to us from the Lord. Uh, So as I refer to Peter and Peter's words here, what I want you to understand is that this is God's word. Uh, These are God's words delivered to us this morning through the Apostle Peter. Peter was given the authority by Jesus Christ to communicate particular messages to the church to be the authoritative messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only does he identify himself as the author, notice secondly here that he identifies his audience. In verse 1 he says, to the elect exiles, to those who are elect exiles. He identifies these recipients of this first letter uh, to be elect, that is chosen. That's the word in your Bible, might be the word chosen. Uh, Those who are chosen exiles. Uh, The word itself means to be, we understand the word, it's Quite simple to be elect or to be chosen right we use the word in our language to talk about elections right where we choose a president or choose a particular individual to represent us well here God identifies that we are chosen by God to receive salvation we are called if you will uh, to receive Jesus says many are Chosen, right? Many are chosen. So we understand that throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, writers often describe Christians as the elect or as the chosen ones. Uh, An example of this might be Titus 1-2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And so there Paul identifies God's people as elect, as the chosen ones. Or Jesus himself in Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse. He identifies uh, the elect as those who are chosen by God to suffer. And so we're going to think more about this in a moment, what election is in in its detail, uh, and why it's so important, why we're going to spend so much time thinking about it. And just a, a word of warning, I understand that that often with the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination and, and those things that go along with it, there's much confusion, much fog, and uh, and really much manipulation by uh, various preachers and teachers over the time. And I hope to be faithful to God's Word, not go beyond the Word of God, but to also expose wrong thinking uh, like Pelagianism and what we see today in semi-Pelagianism. And so I hope to expose those things and, and to... Uh, really help you grow in the gospel of grace. Not to be afraid uh, to use this. At the end of the day, I always say this about predestination and about election. It's in the Bible, therefore it's true. The problem is is that many men have distorted what it means. And so we hope to make clear on it. We still notice also here that he identifies them as exiles. He calls them elect exiles. Uh, they were exiled and And this language, if you're familiar with the Bible, is is that Old Testament language, right? Uh, Of the nation of Israel that was exiled because of their sin. They were exiled into Babylonian territory. They were, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken them into exile, into a foreign land. And as you read through the prophets, they often use, particularly Daniel, uh, talks about living life in a foreign land, right? Right? That's what the book of Daniel is, is really all about, about how you can faithfully follow God when there's no temple, where there's no appearance that there's God is present. And, and, and so it is with God's people we are called, identified here as exiles. Now there's much, uh, the word itself there is in the diaspora. Now uh, this is used metaphorically uh, by Peter. Uh, He's not referring to a particular place, but referring to a particular uh, uh, word image. So when someone would have heard the word diaspora, that would have been the region where people would have been scattered, Jews would have been scattered in Gentile territory. And so what he is basically identifying is Gentile Christians. He's using this as a metaphor to refer to Gentile Christians living in what feels like foreign territory. And he identifies here these cities, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as really uh, the region of what today is modern day Turkey. So if you know where Turkey is, uh, you know, not gobble gobble Turkey, but like, you know, the place Turkey. Uh, so if you know, if you look on a map, modern day Turkey. That's where he's talking about. These are the regions. So so he's writing to Christians living in that region, most likely Gentile Christians. And the reason why he, I think it's Gentile Christians, because he what he identifies later in this Uh, In in verse 9 of chapter 5, resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so there we understand that that he is writing to Christians, not just Jewish Christians, but most likely Gentile Christians, Christians like you and I, uh, living in a country that is foreign, uh, not a Christian nation, uh, not a Christian land. Uh, They are living in the diaspora. Uh, They are living as exiles. But what was the occasion? Why is he writing this letter? As we always want to consider the context of any letter, we want to consider the occasion, why the author is writing it. Why did, why did Peter pick up his pen and begin to write? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire this letter to be written to the church? Well, it was because, that because we are exiles and because we live in a foreign land, we understand that we will suffer. That living and following Christ in a fa- fallen world will always bring about difficulty and suffering. And so throughout this letter, we see as a thread running throughout the idea of this call to suffering. So, for example, if you have your Bibles open, just look down with me at verse 6. Chapter 1 and verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so these are Christians that are under trial, under difficulty, under suffering. And he, and he goes on to talk about why that is, why they are suffering. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, look, you're suffering for a particular purpose and a particular reason as evidence of your salvation, of evidence. And so throughout the letter we see suffering is a part of it. And so that's kind of the backstory. That's kind of the, the introduction to the letter. Now let's get into what, what's really the point of this particular passage. Outside of introducing us to, to really the themes of the letter, what is, what is Peter's purpose? Uh, why uh, has he written these words? particular words to us this morning. I think we could summarize it in this way. Christians are chosen according to God's electing purposes by means of the Spirit's sanctifying work for the express purpose of obedience to Christ. I'll say that again. Christians are chosen according to God's electing purposes by means of the Spirit's sanctifying work for the express purpose of obedience to Christ. And so our passage offers us uh, an anchor uh, amidst the prevailing winds of suffering as we are living in a life as we are we are facing temptation and difficulty, whether it be within, within or from without. We need comfort. We need encouragement. And the doctrine of election is an anchor that holds us in the midst of the storms of life. The doctrine of election is what will ground us as we rightly understand conversion as we rightly understand that what we are facing in life has been in fact brought about by a good and gracious and sovereign God. That everything you experience in life has been purposed by God. Even your salvation. And so our passage this morning comforts Christians amidst these prevailing winds of suffering by anchoring you with three weighty Theological truths concerning election. So we're going to consider three, really three points. And, and I just want to, I'll want i show you, it's going to be real simple. Uh, this is not me, this is the Apostle Peter. And I'll show you what Peter is writing here. Look with me at verse 2. The, the, uh, in verse 2, I'll uh, give you a little bit of the structure, a little bit of the, the background here, and then we'll get into it. I want you to see this is coming, these three points. Uh, notice the three prepositions. According to... In and for. According to the foreknowledge of God. Election is according to the foreknowledge of God. It is in the sanctification of the Spirit. And it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling with His blood. But we see those three points are what hangs, if you will, from that word elect. They are elect according to The foreknowledge of God. They are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit, and they are elect for obedience to Christ. And so, those are our three points this morning that we want to consider. First, your election is based on God the Father's sovereign purposes. That is, election finds its basis in God. Your election is realized by the work of the Spirit. Thirdly, your election is for the express purpose of obedience to Christ. The purpose of your election is to bring about obedience in your life. Let's consider this first point. What does it mean uh, that election is according to the foreknowledge of God? Uh, The word there, according, has the idea of basis or origin. Peter wants to make clear That our election is from God alone. Election is not something that you can achieve. No more than a president can elect himself to be president can we elect ourselves to be saved. There's nothing that we do in order to merit God's election. There's nothing that we can somehow appease God that we can kind of get on his list to be voted on. God's election has everything to do with his purpose of grace. We heard that clearly in the scripture reading this morning. In Ephesians 2. If you have your Bibles open, turn there. In Ephesians 1. Excuse me. Ephesians 1. Just turn over a, a dozen or so pages to the to the left, and we'll consider again Ephesians 1. Friend, what a what a weighty passage to meditate on. But I want to see, I want to show you here. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He, that is God, chose us in Him, that is Christ, so God chose us in Christ. Notice when this happened. Before the foundation of the world. That is, before He ever created the world, God had purposed to save sinners. Sinners. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world with a particular purpose, a particular aim in mind that we'll consider in a moment that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to, here is our word, according to the purpose of God's will. According to His will. And so we again, I want you to see that that we could consider several passages. This is just one example. That the Bible presents the doctrine of election as something according to God's eternal purposes. It is, if you will, God's mind and His alone. And it's a revelation of that. As Peter writes in in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now this is where people get a little funky Uh, when it comes to the doctrine of election. They get a little goofy here when we begin to think about foreknowledge. Oftentimes, the doctrine of foreknowledge is wrongly defined in this way. Often, when people talk about God's foreknowledge and election, what they will say is that God has elected a people that He looked into eternity future and He saw those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him. He foreknew that Those are the elect. Those are the ones he elected. And while this word has this understanding of it, we don't want to diminish the the reality. It is merely we understand that he did foreknow them in that way. He had a knowledge of the elect as he looked into the future, For God uh, is outside of time and space. But this word means more than that. It means not only that he foreknew them, that is, that he had knowledge of them, but that he predetermined their life. That this word means the predetermination of God's omniscient wisdom. Uh, so, how could we come to that court of conclusion? Well, by looking at how, the, how, how Luke uses the same word in connection with Jesus in Acts 2.23. Listen to what Luke writes in Acts 2.23 concerning Jesus. And we're going to see how this all sort of circles around. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. That is, he was predestined to die. And according to the foreknowledge of God. So Jesus' death He not only foreknew, that is predestined, but he knew it and he worked it out. We see that also here in the letter. Verse 20 of chapter 1. Here Peter talks about Jesus. And notice what he says about Jesus in verse 20. Jesus, verse 20 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Now, clearly, if you understand what Peter is saying here, and you understand what he's saying in verse 2, it can't mean that God simply knew Jesus was going to someday come, but that he purposed it, he predestined it according to his definite plan. You see, the foreknowledge of God not only means that he foreknew it, but that he purposed it. That he brought it about. That there are those that God has saved, that God has called, and those whom he hasn't called. There are those that God is calling out of darkness and light, and those he is not. And you might wonder, where do you get this understanding of God from? This is a weighty thing to say about God. Well, friend, we see the doctrine of election running as a thread throughout the entire Scripture. Consider Abraham. One man. Chosen. Out of a mass of thousands of people that stretched the landscape of our world, God purposed to save one man. Abraham. As we consider before Abraham... We consider that God chose to save Noah and his family out of mass Not because Noah was more righteous. No, the guy was just as wicked as the rest of us are. But because of God's purpose, election. As we consider Jacob and Esau, God chose to save Jacob, not Esau. Not because Jacob was so much better than Esau. No, Jacob was just as twisted and wicked as Esau. In fact, if you consider, Esau, he seemed to be a little bit more of a noble character than Jacob. God purposed to save one and not the other. God purposed to redeem one and not redeem the other. We see this is the character of God. Back to 1 Peter. Right here in 1 Peter, we we see in chapter 2, Peter tells us the same thing that we are talking about. He talks about how there are some who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. How there are some who say no to the gospel. Look at what he writes in chapter 2. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Here's that word again, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Oh, now listen, listen to the word of God. Here's God's word. They stumble because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do. They stumble. They are morally responsible for their rejection of Christ, but yet they were destined to stumble. It was predetermined that they would fall, that they would stumble on this stone, but for you, you have not. You have chosen freely of your own free will according to God's purpose. it is glorious. The doctrine of election reminds us that we are not worthy of salvation. That there is nothing in us that God looked into the future and saw that made us worthy of salvation. That semi-Pelagian view, and, and semi-Pelagian was a guy who Augustine fought uh, about 1600 years ago, he was a false teacher in the church. And today, there's a court of semi-pelagianism that we kind of make our way and find our way to God. We somehow have worth in us to do that. As we'll consider in a moment, that the doctrine of election coincides with depravity. We rightly understand that we are depraved, unable to save ourselves, unable that we are actually dead. We understand that God has to do something, God has to intervene, and so He does by calling a people for His own glory. That's what the story of the Bible is all about. That's the story of the Bible, that's the the narrative of Scripture that God is calling a people for His own glory. And so we are humbled this morning, as we heard in in our statement of faith. That the doctrine of election promotes humility in us. It promotes a sense of humility that, that, wow, I am unworthy to be called. I am unworthy to be chosen. I am unworthy to re- be lavish upon this grace. It is only fools that twist election into a moment of pride, that use it as somehow, wow, I'm elect, I must be special. No, the doctrine of election lessens us and smashes us down to the ground and reminds us that we are unworthy of His grace. This is why we must not neglect it. We must not neglect it. It is such a a good and weighty. It is an anchor that holds it. it. It reminds us that He who began a good work will complete it. It reminds us that we are unworthy. It reminds us that our salvation is anchored in eternity past. And there is nobody with time machines that can go back and and loosen that anchor. That anchor is secure. Your salvation is secure. We can talk about the perseverance of the saints. We can talk about eternal security and salvation so long as we have a deep and weighty understanding of election. That our salvation is grounded in the mind of God. And for His glory alone. It is solely based on His eternal purposes. He has lavished His grace on you. But not only that, notice secondly, that it is in the sanctification of the Spirit. We are considering here the doctrine of election and how it corresponds to conversion. It is in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, it seems confusing here in the ESV. I think the the Christian Standard Bible, the the new version here, makes it a little bit uh, clearer. And that is it's through the sanctifying work, the Spirit's sanctifying work. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who is bringing about the realization of our election. The Holy Spirit is the one, it's by means of the Spirit of God that we are called out of darkness and light. As we see those words, that word sanctification, we often understand sanctification to be that progressively changing over time, right? We are sanctified. Uh, Paul uses that that change process where we are changed from one degree of glory to the next, right? But here, Peter seems to have a, a different sense of the word. He doesn't mean that we're being changed, but but rather what he means to understand here is that we are called to be holy. That is, the work of the Spirit is to make us holy. And you'll notice how holiness is a a thread that runs throughout this. If you just have your Bibles, just look down at chapter 1 and verse 13. Throughout this he says, uh, verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are called to be holy. We are chosen to be holy. And the question is, is how do unholy people become holy? How does a bunch of sinners become holy? It is by means of the work of the Spirit. It's not by some self-improvement program some conversion therapy. It is through the power of the Spirit where we are transformed by the gospel of grace. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, but we ought always to give thanks to God the Father, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so we're talking about here how God transforms us in election. That God has elected us, chosen us to be holy. This is wonderful. This is marvelous to consider. We often think that we can somehow improve ourselves through obedience and and through self-improvement. But friends, the doctrine of depravity reminds us that we are wicked. That we are dead in our sins. That we are unable to do anything. One important thing to remember is that ability precedes belief. You must be able to do it before you can do it. And depravity teaches us that we are unable. We are unable to believe on Christ. We are unable to trust in the glorious gospel of Christ apart from the work of the Spirit. That's what Peter is saying here. He's saying that, look, this is actualized. This is realized through the Spirit. And if the Spirit does not work, then it does not come about. If you want to read more about this understanding of ability precedes belief, uh, I'll, I'll point you to three places in the Gospel of John. John 3, John 6, and John 10. I encourage you to read them and pay close attention to that truth that one must be called before they come. That And that all that... Are called, come. That is, that as Jesus says, the wind blows, but we do not know where it comes from, and so it is with the Spirit. The Spirit's work is a mysterious work, but it is His work nonetheless. The Spirit's work is to call God's people to salvation. Now, this is not some sort of passive thing. This isn't like you're just sitting on your your lazy boy at home and all of a sudden the Spirit comes upon you and, and boy, you become a Christian. No, we understand that it's through the preaching of the Gospel. As Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. That is, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and creates the people of God. Ezekiel 36. God uses His Word... To create His people by His Spirit. That's how He does it. And so it is with Peter. Peter says, look, the reason why you know that you are elect, the reason why you know you can have confidence in your election is because you are increasingly becoming more holy. As we considered on Wednesday 9 in Colossians, we are called saints because we are holy. And brothers, this gives us an encouragement word, a word of encouragement. As Paul writes, he who began a good work on you in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Or as first, first 1 Peter "Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friend, the work of the Spirit guards you. The work of the Spirit holds you. And it gives us confidence to know that we will one day be holy. One day day we will receive our salvation. Third and finally here, Peter writes for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We see the word for there. clearly as the understanding of purpose. It was, it's for this purpose, or leading to, or resulting in, obedience. Election results in, has the purpose of, the goal in mind of, obedience to Christ. So the work of the Spirit works itself out to bring about obedience to Christ in our life. This is the purpose of the Spirit's work, that we would be holy as He is holy, Holy people are obedient people. They're ones who obey Christ Jesus. And and again, throughout this letter, we see numerous imperatives to live holy lives, to be obedient, to be obedient people. And so, friends, I just want you to understand that obedience is just a key term running throughout this letter. But it is impossible to obey Christ apart from the work of the Spirit. It's impossible to, do, uh, to be faithfully obedient to Christ apart from him. And so Paul reminds us of this truth when he writes, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, that is, the goal of our salvation is obedience to Jesus, to obedience to his word. Now, we have this strange phrase in here, I want to deal with it very quickly, sprinkling with his blood. The understanding, what does this mean? Well, well, it's really a metaphor to covenant ratification. In the Old Testament, when a covenant was ratified, it would always be ratified uh, by sprinkling with blood. So an example of this might be Exodus 24. There when the covenant was received from God, Moses sprinkled it with blood. And so the covenant, our election, is secured in the blood of Christ. It is ratified in the death of Jesus Christ. And the understanding of His precious blood, as we see in 1 Peter 2.18, you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. To the blood of Christ is what ratifies the covenant we have. Our election is not in us, but in Christ, in His work alone. We're often frustrated when we we don't understand the purpose of something. I'm sure many of us, we've done things maybe at at work or at home, and we often are frustrated, like, why do I have to do this? Why is my boss making, this seems meaningless, there's no point to this. Why, Why do I have to do this? But when you know the purpose of something, it gives us a sense of confidence. It gives us a sense of encouragement, a comfort, if you will. When you understand the work of the Spirit in your life, when you understand the purpose of suffering, uh, when you understand the purpose of trials and difficulty, when you understand that trials bring about a growth in faith, a growth in obedience to Christ, when you understand the purpose of those things, when you understand the Spirit has driven you into the wilderness of life that you might trust in God alone, it gives you comfort, it gives you a encouragement. So friends, I just wonder, if you're a Christian this morning, do you see your life growing in these ways? Do you see the evidence of God's work in your life? The work of the Spirit. A growing obedience to Christ. Obedience to His Word. Obedience to the truth of Scripture. Does that give you comfort and encouragement? Do you see that? Do you put a premium on personal holiness? that, That you are called to be holy. And that you can be holy through the work of the Spirit. I often wonder, when your faith is weak, what do you look to? What confidence do you have? Here Peter lays out for you an anchor. An anchor in your life. Something that you can anchor into, hold fast to grab tightly and trust and depend on. that God has saved you for His glory through faith in Christ alone, through repentance, We can know this to be true. Friends, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. But oh, it is glorious to know that He has chosen us in Him that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. By his work alone, and to his praise and glory alone, he does these things. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give praise to you. Father, as we consider the weight of this, as we consider the might and power of your hand, That your arm is not too weak as to unable to save, but you can save. In fact, you have purposed it, you have planned it. This is not something that is happening haphazardly, but by your glory and by your wisdom, you are working this out. According to your great knowledge, you are doing it. And we marvel in it. We see a sense of mystery in it. And we trust in it, though we don't fully understand or comprehend all of the intricacies and all of the details. We trust it. And we trust you are a good God, a gracious God. And I pray this morning that we would see ourselves as elect exiles, according to your foreknowledge, by means of the Spirit's sanctifying work, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, may we see the work of your gospel in our lives for your glory. Amen. Amen. As we